So marriage, what's the point? We're currently thinking about how we bring the Bible to life. And the aim of this teaching series is to show each other where to look in the Bible when thinking about life's issues. We're not telling you specifically what to think. Hopefully we are showing you how to think biblically for yourselves. We want to equip you with some biblical navigation for this rapidly changing world that we live in. Sometimes the Bible's teaching on a subject is straightforward and clear, and we therefore then have a straightforward choice of following that teaching or not. The Ten Commandments, for example, have some very straightforward instructions. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. And it's then our choice whether we we follow those guidelines from God or not. Sometimes the teaching in the Bible is culture-specific. Perhaps in the Old Testament we have some Jewish laws that don't translate into our times. Things like food laws, perhaps head coverings in some cultures, which are important in one place in time, but aren't important in another. Other teaching in the Bible needs interpretation as we seek to apply it to complex and rapidly changing subject areas like medicine, for example, and sexual ethics. Our world and the people who inhabit this world is and are gloriously complex. The Bible, too, is gloriously complex. This is a library containing 66 books from multiple authors and multiple cultures spanning thousands of years. It is an amazing book. We must never dumb it down to shallow sound bites, nor co-opt it for our own purposes. Having said that, the Bible is also wonderfully simple. Its core message is about a gift of unconditional love from God the Father sent to us from heaven in the person of his Son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. These words are like the DNA of God. It's who he is. And they are at the heart of the message of the Bible, no matter what the subject. The unconditional love of God is there at the heart of today's subject, marriage. So I'd like to invite you today to three weddings. I love a good wedding. It's great, isn't it? It's great to get that invite through the post and then to be part of the celebrations and, you know, get your outfit and all that stuff, buy a present and just go and enjoy being part of a wonderful time of commitment and celebration. The three weddings that we're invited to today are all in the Bible and we're going to use them to help us think about the purpose of marriage. And specifically these purposes. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a sign of glory. And marriage is an act of worship. 
And we're going to look at a wedding in the Garden of Eden, a marriage made in Eden, a marriage made in Cana in Galilee, and a marriage made in heaven. So first of all, a marriage made in Eden. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. And Liz Campbell is going to come and read to us now. Thanks, Liz. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thank you, Liz. Marriage is a gift from God. The first record of human speech in the Bible is wedding poetry. I think that's great. There they are, Adam and Eve, all dressed up in their birthday suits, (laughs) completely naked. Adam's eyes are popping out. And in my favorite translation of this story in the Street Bible, Adam says, Wow, now we're talking. (laughs) She's like me, only not. She's sexy. If I'm man, she's woman. Which is why when people get married, they leave their parents behind and set up their own family unit. Sex makes them one person. You can't tell where one stops and the other starts. What a gift. What's the point of marriage? It's a gift from God. And that's what the union of Adam and Eve shows us. God really does give the best wedding presents. Two people, a man and a woman, who have literally been made for each other to fit together given to each other and placed in a beautifully diverse world with fulfilling work and even time off to enjoy each other's company. Marriage is a gift from God. And this tells us a lot about God's heart for us. In this passage, we see a picture of companionship, mutual support, the joy of sex, and in due course, A family. What a great gift. So first of all, thinking about that partnership gift. It's significant, isn't it, that God took a part of the man's side to make the woman. God's original blueprint had the man and woman side by side. They were the same but different. Different strengths and different ways of seeing things. And together, a strong help for each other. That's what the Hebrew word 
Eder means the word for help when God provided a helper for Adam. That's a strong help. Most commonly used in the Old Testament when referring to God. There was no subordination in their original relationship. That came after the fall and was redeemed by Jesus Christ on the cross. The best marriages that I've seen work well operate like a partnership. They have this kind of natural oneness that is represented here by Adam and Eve's physical union. Here's an example on the screen that Lewis is going to put up for us now. Can anyone tell us who that is? Jimmy Carter and the other person? Rosalind, well done, well done Richard. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Jimmy, of course, if you're older than 40, you'll know this. Maybe a younger than 40, you might not know. Former US president. When he stepped down from the presidency, he committed not to make money out of his position. But him and his wife, Rosalind, set up the Carter Foundation and devoted themselves to helping people in poorer countries. They've been married for 72 years. And when I'm marrying people, I often use them as an example. And each time I use them, obviously they get older and older and they've been married for longer and longer. And they're always talking about what keeps their relationship ticking. Mutual respect, they say, is the secret to their marital success. That means giving one another plenty of space, as well as enjoying each other's company. These are their words. Time together and time apart. Space and doing things together and respecting what each other can do are the things that have made it really special. They both remain active in the Carter Center, the human rights organization they founded in 1982. They maintain separate offices and work hours. He's in his 90s now. But they are unequivocally each other's confidants and consultants. I depend on him when I have questions, she says, when I'm writing speeches, anything, I consult with him. And that goes both ways. They enjoy active hobbies such as tennis and fly fishing. They take turns at reading the Bible to each other every night. And they still hold hands everywhere they go. Now you can read how this kind of partnership works in the Bible. So for homework, if you want, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, a passage often read at weddings, talks about this beautiful picture of how a marriage partnership, like the Carters, actually works. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. It always considers the interests of the other. Or in Acts 18, read the account of Priscilla and Aquila's story. Two people that made tents with Paul and shared the gospel with Paul. You always find them together, always getting alongside people and helping them together. Or have a look in the Old Testament at the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, where it tells us that two are better than one. And two can keep each other warm. And two can defend each other. And a cord of three strands with God in the middle is not quickly broken. Then there's a gift of sexual union. And I think it's a great shame that God doesn't get the credit he deserves for inventing sex. 
is being twisted, devalued, and abused by the devil, the evil one, and mankind in so many ways. And sadly, religious leaders down through the centuries who should have known better, making it something to be ashamed of rather than celebrated as a heavenly gift. What a tragedy. Especially when we read here of how it all started. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. God does, however, give us parameters for his gift. And that's not to spoil our fun, but to enhance it. You see, sex is a very powerful thing. It is not a casual thing at all. Although our culture would differ, there is no such thing as casual sex. At its best, it allows us to be completely known, naked in the presence of another human being. And that simply can't happen on the first or the third date. The original marriage blueprint we see here is between one man and one woman. Sex is also clearly given to humanity as a wedding gift to be enjoyed within the security and trust of a marriage, which then becomes a safe place for the nurture of children and family life. You'll hear these words at weddings and churches when you attend them, and they're true. Now, these parameters may seem very out of date in our culture, but the Bible has a very high sexual ethic and doesn't apologize for it. And neither should we. God simply gives us a gift with the guidance and the freedom to use his gift as we choose. Now, that seems pretty generous to me. The very next chapter in the Bible of Adam and Eve's story describes what then went wrong. Because things do go wrong, don't they? They go wrong for all of us. Men and women have chosen to do things their own way. And often it doesn't go well. As Christians, we are called to be like Jesus. Here at the heart of North Yorkshire. So we take our guidance on this subject from Jesus. And that's helpful because when Jesus was here, he didn't join in with any prejudice. He didn't join in the stone throwing and the judging. He was the one person in the position where he could judge. But as he said to Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders of the day, I'm not here to judge people, I'm here to save them. And Jesus, John's gospel tells us, was full of grace and truth. He received people from all walks of life and all backgrounds into his group to be his followers. People with all sorts of messy relationships. He welcomed them with open arms, with love and mercy. And then he spoke the truth to them, teaching them a different way of being in relationship with God and other people. In other words, he saved them. And the good news is that Jesus is still in the business of saving us today. He knows our failings and our weaknesses. He knows the effect that sin has had on our world and our lives and our relationships. 
So there is no place for homophobia, for example, in the church. That little word at the end, phobos, is a Greek word which means fear. Not to be afraid of people. Because the Bible tells us love casts out fear. There's no place for that kind of prejudice in the church. And here at New Life, we take a very simple approach. Everyone is welcome to join us at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross because none of us are perfect. I think that's true, isn't it? Especially in the area of sexual ethics. None of us can put our hand up and say, I'm perfect there. I've never done anything wrong there. It's just not true. Everyone is welcome. But no one can stay the same. Christ's sacrifice on our behalf calls us to turn around and place him at the centre of our lives and our relationships. I don't have all the answers for that or how that works, but I'm up for working it out together under God's direction as a group of people here in North Allerton called to be like Jesus at the heart of our county. We're all in it together in this messy and glorious thing called church. And it too is a gift of grace from God. If you want to read further on this subject, there's a lot of books out there. Let me recommend just a few. One book that's really helped me, a book by an American guy called Andrew Marin, which is called Love is an Orientation. He's an evangelical who worked with the gay community on the west coast of America. Really helpful in terms of taking the good news of Jesus, the love of God, to all people. It's a great book. Another book by Rob Bell. Not everyone's favourite writer, but this book is absolutely fantastic. It's called Sex God. Really helpful in terms of thinking through what it all means and how exploring the endless connections between sexuality and spirituality opens our eyes to what God is doing by giving us this wonderful gift. A book I use with people who are getting ready to become married is Sacred Marriage by a guy called Gary Thomas. The basic ethos of this book is that marriage is not given to us to make us happy. It's given to us to make us holy and to draw us near to God. Marriage is a sacred thing. And in the process of drawing near to God, we will become happy. That's a a side benefit. Great book. And if you're getting ready to get married then I often recommend this devotional by Gary Thomas, the writer of this book. It's a series of 52 devotions for a couple who can once a week get together, read the Bible, pray, and get ready for their wedding in a year's time. Very good devotional book. If you want to have a look at these, come have a dip in later. So let's move on to the next marriage, a marriage made in Cana. Jim Smith's going to come and read from John's Gospel for us. Thanks, Jim. This reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 2 and verses 1 to 11. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. 
his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What's the point in marriage? It is a sign that there is something even more glorious to come. So here's a top tip from this Bible passage. It's always a good idea to invite Jesus to your wedding. Because every marriage needs a miracle from time to time. This one was just getting started when the wine ran out. We don't know why. Maybe they didn't buy enough. That'd be a Yorkshire wedding. (laughs) I'm leaving the country in two days. Are people drank too much? A Scottish wedding. (laughs) It doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus was there at the start of the couple's marriage. And that's a good sign. Because Jesus always changes things for the better. The master of the banquet was gobsmacked at the quality of the new wine. And the quantity too, over 120 gallons. That'd keep them going for a while. John tells us that this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's what Jim's just read to us. So if you want a glorious marriage then invite Jesus to be present. Put your faith in him and miracles will happen because he can take a marriage running on empty and breathe new life into it. He can take a marriage full of regret and resentment and fill it with a hope of forgiveness. He can take a marriage that is broken and lovingly restore it and make it better than it was before. He can only do this, however, if we let him. And that means both parties. If one party in a marriage decided that they don't want to, then there's actually nothing even God can do about that. But when we invite Jesus in, he shows us a new way of doing things. We need to follow his mum Mary's advice and learn to do whatever he tells us in every area of our married life. So in this story, what the Lord asked him to do was counterintuitive. It didn't make sense. Fill a bunch of stone jars with water and take it to the wine guy. You know, that does not make sense. And often he guides us in the same way though, asking us to take a different approach, to change our mindset, to change our way of seeing things. Change our approach to perhaps a problem we are facing 
or a dispute we may be having with our spouse. Forgiveness is a good example. Roy Searle talked about that last week. Lord, why should I forgive? I'd rather retain the moral high ground. It's me that's been wronged. Or perhaps as a couple it's simply a problem you're facing together and you just don't know what to do. You're stuck. You're up a a dead end. Maybe that's you today. The turning point, however, is when we turn to Jesus and ask for help. At this Jewish wedding, the couple would have been married under a big sheet held up with four poles. Just the two of them under this thing called a hoopah. Now the hoopah represents God's covering promises that he made to his people in the book of Exodus. The promises that God made to his people are beautiful. Here they are, four of them. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you to me. And these are the the four promises which a a Jewish groom makes to his bride under the hoopah. And when we turn to Jesus and need a help, Jesus says to us today, I'll take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you to me. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether things are wonderful, let's give thanks to God for the gift of our spouse, our partner. Maybe we need help. Come to God and he will redeem our situation. Or maybe things have been broken beyond repair and that's not possible now. Even there, God is with you and will draw near to you and will bring a new start. Come and pray with the prayer team at the end of the service. Ask the Lord Jesus what to do. And then when you get a sense of that, do whatever he tells you. Or if if you don't want to do that here, get in touch with me if you would like to talk further. And then there's the Bible. It's full of the wisdom of the Lord. Turn to God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you both the way forward and the situation you're facing. Have a look at Philippians chapter 2, which Andrew Spence spoke on just a couple of weeks ago. That's all about being like-minded with Christ. Having the same humility, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we invite Jesus to the table, the kitchen table, miracles happen. And then joy follows as we, his disciples, believe in him. The last marriage is a marriage made in heaven. Jane Condon's going to come and reach us from Revelations. Thanks, Jane. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous act of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Thanks, Jane. What's the point of marriage? 
It is an act of worship. That's what it is. The whole book of Revelation is about worship. When the Lord revealed to John what was going on in heaven, he was overwhelmed by the sheer beauty and holiness of it all. So much so that when we read the book, we frequently find him flat on his face, unable to stand or speak or to join in. He was a quivering wreck. When it comes to describing the final coming together of God and man at the end of the book, he uses the imagery of a wedding to help us grasp the closeness and the beauty of the relationship. It is a wedding supper that we find in Revelation. The Lamb of God is there. There is worship and there are invited guests who have made themselves ready. It's a beautiful picture of the coming together of God and his people, which reminds us that every marriage has the potential to be a coming together of two people and God in an act of worship. In the ordinary stuff of life, making ends meet, making the supper, making love, always looking to the interests of the other. Making marriages which are a blessing to our culture and society and not inverted just selfishly thinking of ourselves. How are we using our marriages to bless the people around us? All of this is raw material to be used to say hallelujah for our God Almighty reigns. Blessing each other and the people around us for the praise and glory of God. And pointing forward to a wedding and a union which every single one of us gets to participate if we join in. The wedding supper of the Lamb. When finally God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. This is what marriage points forward to. Marriage as we know it is just a taster of this. And will be superseded by an ecstatic union between God and people. All made possible by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. This is a reminder, a taster, that there's another supper to come. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Which will fill us with the joy of the Lord like we have never known it before. Hallelujah. Let us rejoice and be glad. And for now, we, the bride, can come to this table to be made righteous in God's sight and then go out from here to live lives, whether single or married, in worshipful anticipation of what is yet to come, all because of the blood of the Lamb who washes us. Amy's going to come and sing a song to us now. Just invite you to listen and just allow the Spirit to speak to your heart today as we get ready and prepare our hearts to share the Lord's Supper together. Thanks.
the blood.